Good morning again. Um, I want to say thank you once again to, well, first to Pastor Jay, Pastor Bim, Pastor Sibby, and all the other leaders of this church. When you're, when you're planting a church, there's this question that comes to mind once in a while, like, why are we doing this again? Um, this is really difficult, and like it, New York City doesn't make it easy at all. And it's so encouraging for us, one, to know as we remember the strength of God and his character, his promises that he's going to glorify himself and build his church. That is primarily what motivates us in everything. But it's also very encouraging for me and our team to know that there is a church in Philadelphia that believes in what God is doing through us too. And so even though they have not had a chance to meet you and haven't had an opportunity to thank you personally, we are so grateful for your partnership. I'm especially thank you, thankful again for the elders of the church and how um, they've been, through their words of encouragement, not just in offering financial support, but in their words of encouragement, their prayers, and we've just feel, felt so strengthened by it. So thank you so much for that. Um, we are now in a, in a place where, as a church, where we are thinking about the neighborhood. Um, and there aren't very many situations in, in life where we'll be very intentional about the neighborhood or think about our neighbors very often, not at least in, in a very explicit way. Church planning can do that because we are, we would, we'll prayer walk or we'll think about how to best serve the needs of the community. Most people move to New York City to consume the city, right? It, it's like a city of anonymity. You can move in. You can... Go to school there. Once you're done, you're out. Or you can put something on your resume, say you worked in New York, New York and you're out. Most people don't come to the city to plant churches or to be missionaries to the city, at least if you're a Christian, right? And so we have this desire to not consume the city, but to love and bless the city, to be very intentional about our neighbors and our neighborhood. Um, and this idea of loving our neighborhood and our neighbors is no small matter to Jesus, in fact, when he's asked what is the greatest commandment, he says that all of the law can hang on these two commandments or can be summarized in loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is, is like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're a church thinking critically about how to follow Jesus, we ought to be thinking about these two things, loving God and loving our neighbor. It ought to be at the forefront of our thinking. But there are some challenges when you think about loving your neighbors. And today there's one that's unique to our context and in our generation that might not have existed in cent centuries ago. Like today, when you think about loving your neighbors, it's a little bit more nuanced than back then. You, you want to know who your neighbors are, you walk outside of your, your ranch or your farm or wherever you live, and your neighbor is how many ever miles away, or it's actually the person geographically living next to you. Um, in our context, there are a lot of people who consider their coworkers as their neighbors because they only sleep in their apartment. Or their roommates are shifting and they're changing every six months and they have someone else coming in. And so this idea of loving their neighbors, they see their workplace as their neighborhood and not necessarily their geographic location. Um, our hypermobility doesn't help this. Um, we can jump on a plane and travel several, several thousands of miles away by the end of the day. We could FaceTime a person on another continent. You can think you're in community and you can think of your social network as your neighbors when they really don't know you that well. They just see your pictures and kind of know what you're up to. This idea of who is my neighbor, who am I supposed to love can, can really be challenging for us. But I would just submit to you today that at the end of today, there are only going to be a handful of people that actually physically occupy the same space as you. There are going to only be a handful of people who see you and you see them and they, that God brings in your path 
in this particular day. And the question is, who are they and how can we love them? Who's right in front of us? Like if you're, if you're some, some, someone who's influential on social media or you want to connect with your inter- internet friends, you could spend like 30 minutes on an Instagram post and not love like your children who are like looking at you saying, dad, please just pay attention to me. You know, like maybe I'm, I'm guilty. I'm not on Instagram, so this doesn't apply. But like, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? Like we'll, we'll neglect people who are actually within our proximity, like who's physically in our space and not see that God has actually placed this person in our path. No matter how significant you want to be in life and how many people you hope may be at your funeral to talk about how great of a life you've lived, there are only going to be a handful of people who know you in and out, know you intimately, can share stories, and whether they're funny or tragic or whatever, triumphant, like only a few people that God is going to bring your way. Who are those people? That's, that's half the battle. The second part of the battle is actually where we're going to have, what we're going to focus on today, which is how do we love them when they're difficult to love? Because the longer you are with people, the more and more that those people come your way, you're going to find reasons to want to exclude them. And I believe that's the context of today's passage. In today's story, there's a man who, it sounds like he simply just wants to know who his neighbor is. And who is my neighbor is, a, is actually his question. But underneath it is a question of how he can actually exclude people from, being, from, loving, uh, from actually loving them. And so Jesus, in this story, actually... If he's going to follow Jesus, and this applies to us as well, if we're going to follow Jesus, and if he's going to follow Jesus in loving his neighbors, he's going to actually have to do two things. And so our question today is, how can we love the people in our path, especially when they're difficult to love, and what are those two ways that we can do that? And so in order for this to be meaningful, I'd like you to take, take a, a moment right now to think about somebody that you are tempted to exclude from loving. Think about someone that's difficult to love. It could be an actual neighbor, a coworker. It could be someone in this room. <laughs> don't make eye contact, right? Like, don't like, don't have to do that. Someone that you know, you you you, you maybe consider them neighbor or whatever, but you're it's difficult to love them. Think of that person, and actually think of them throughout our entire convers- our discussion today. And we want to apply the scriptures to that particular relationship. We don't want to just talk about loving our neighbors in theory. We want this to become real. And I pray that as we discuss these things, the Holy Spirit would lead you and speak to you in how maybe we can love people with the affection of Jesus Christ. Before we jump into it, there are a couple of things to consider. Um, as we talk about loving our neighbors, there are multiple ways to love people, Right? And so as, as we say we have to love our neighbors, this is, does, it does not mean we have to always come around them and make sure they have a good time by the end of the day or they feel good about themselves. Sometimes it's loving to confront a person and challenge them and call them out. I often think about American Idol, like I, if, I think the show still goes on, but like um, whenever they would have in the, like the auditions, People would, who can't sing would be put on in front of the TV. Like They intentionally put those people on TV, right? So you could see how much they just get totally blasted by the judges. As I would hear these people audition and who really lack the talent to sing, I often wondered, like, where are their friends? Like, why don't people love them enough to tell them, like, this, is, maybe, this might not be a good idea for you, right? Like, love in that situation requires you to speak very difficult words to a person. It might actually require you to resist a person or to actually challenge them or to be quiet or to rest, right? I mean, there. so I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, our stories are complex. 
And in order for a person to really help you think through how to love someone, they need to know you and they need to know the person you're talking to. And I just want to, before we get, begin, say, please uh, submit to the counsel of your elders and, and, and the, the conversation in community to help really think through how to love the people in your life. There's no blanket way to do it. So because every person is unique, please think through this, these things in the context of the church. Um, nevertheless, I do believe there are two things that Jesus actually brings out in his story, or at least two things that we will examine in his story that will help us love people when we find it difficult to love them. And the first thing is, we've got to see beyond our justification. And I'm not using that word as in salvation, and I'll explain what I mean in a moment. We've got to see beyond our justification. So our passage begins with a lawyer. He's a religious teacher. He's an expert in the Mosaic law. That's why he's referred to as a a lawyer. Um, He stands up to test Jesus with a question about the law. He asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in typical Jesus style, Jesus responds to his question with another question. He says, well, how do you read it? Like, what does the law say? And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, which reads, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus commends him for answering correctly. He says, yes, do this, and you will live. And you would think that that would be the end of the conversation, because he's gotten his answer. But then the lawyer does something very interesting. He decides to ask a follow-up question. In verse 29, it says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, it's so important that Luke tells us his motivation for this question because it actually puts the rest of Jesus' response in context. It's important that we know that he wants to justify himself in asking this question, and Jesus goes right at it. He goes right at the desire to justify himself. But what does that mean? How is this a way to justify himself, or how can you ask a question with the intention of or the desire to justify yourself? I was once sitting with some of my friends in in the city. We had them over for dinner, and we were talking about the rules for offering your seat on a New York City subway car. Um, I've often wondered, like, man, am I just called to be a nice guy all the time? Do Do I always have to give up my seat on the subway? Like, what are the conditions where it's okay to sit down? I've looked at people before. And wonder, like, mm, you look kind of strong and healthy. Like, I think you can stand. Like, you know, maybe I need to sit in this moment. Um, and so we concluded that you should give up your seat to pregnant women and the elderly. And so I decided to ask a follow-up question, probably with the same motivation as this man in the story. I said, ah, but define elderly. If I ask that question to, define, to justify myself, it probably means that there were times where I saw an elderly person and I didn't, like, uh, give up my seat. My friends really answered by the way. They were like trying to give like how much, how many gray hairs do they have? Are their hands all wrinkly? And like they were really trying to engage me with this, right? Like I probably had situations in my mind where I thought, well, you know, they, they're kind of middle-aged or kind of in the, I don't know if they're, they're considered like elderly. Um, I wanted to assuage my conscience. I wanted to know what is the bare minimum requirement and say that I've actually fulfilled my duty in this moment. I can ask to find elderly, because I want to know whom can I love, or I can ask it in order to know whom, I, whom am I able to continue to exclude and be justified. I think something similar is happening in this passage. The lawyer has just been told that one of the ways to inherit eternal life is to love God and love your neighbor. In fact, in that particular time, and even for us today, 
one of the evidences of actually loving God is seen in the way that we love our neighbors. And it's probably the case where he knew this, that if he's going to show himself to be a man of the law and have true affection for God, he's got to be able to at least square in his mind that he actually loves his neighbor as well. You see, there's a way to ask, who is my neighbor, out of curiosity. Who's my neighbor so I can actually go and love him or her? Jesus, do you want me to love him? Do you want me to love her? Do you want me to love that person? Just tell me who it is because out of curiosity, I want to know how I can follow God more. But then there's another way to ask who is my neighbor, to justify yourself. It's not in order to find out how you can be more loving. It's to prove that you've actually already been loving enough and everything you've been doing is sufficient to fulfill God's law and his command. It means that there, for this man, there are probably people that he's been excluding. And he wants to hear Jesus define neighbor in a way that will allow him to continue to exclude those people. He probably wanted to soothe his conscience to say he fulfilled the minimum requirements and therefore actually does love God. So his question really isn't who is my neighbor. Like if you know this story, the story of the Good Samaritan, it's always been interesting to me like how he asked who's my neighbor. And in Jesus' story, you would think that the person who... At the end, that you should be focusing on is the man who is hurt in the middle of the road. But Jesus turns it around at the very end and says, who proved to be a neighbor? And I actually think that's because he knew he was trying to justify himself. His real question is not who is my neighbor. It's who am I supposed to act neighborly to? Like, who am I actually, who are you actually requiring me to love? And in, in other words, who am I allowed to exclude? Who qualifies for my love? Who can I exclude and be justified? And it's important, again, that we know this because Jesus' parable now will address this head on. It's not actually just about loving our neighbors. It's not even just about loving the, those who are needy or people who are suffering. This parable, I believe, is specifically about loving people we would rather exclude and feel justified doing so. So let's pick up from verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, and a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion now, the fact that the man in this story is half dead, the guy in the middle of the road, the fact that he's half dead is really important to understand the story. Um, if the priest and Levite wanted to walk past him and feel justified, they actually could. It's going to be on the screen because this is what Leviticus 21, 1 and 2 says. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives. So the priests and the Levites of the day, according to Leviticus 21, they were told that a really strict reading of this would say that you shouldn't even go and look to see if that person is dead, lest you want to be unclean or defiled. So what's so interesting here is that Jesus is telling this parable to this man, right, who wants to exclude people and justify himself. And the first two people you meet in the story is a priest and a Levite who can actually walk away from this man and feel justified doing so. He can, they can exclude this man from, from, from actually loving this person and quote scripture. And squared in their conscience, it's almost as if at this point in the story, Jesus is giving this lawyer an out. 
But then a question looms for all of us, and particularly for this man as well, who then will actually love this person? Who's going to be a neighbor to him? If the religious leader, the people who actually stand and mediate the presence of God, or at least the, uh, the commands of God for the people in, day, in that day, if they don't actually love this man, who's going to do it? Who's going to see past their justifications, as we said before? Who's going to actually see this man in the middle of the road the way God does? Who's going to love the man as if he's been made in God image, God's image and love him with the affection that God has for him? So I want you to see something here. Jesus presents two kinds of people in this story. The people whose justifications will conquer the call to love. Or the people whose love will conquer all their justifications. So that's the way I want us to think about this. If, if we're going to follow Jesus in loving our neighbor the way Jesus calls us to, if we're finding ourselves in the story, if we're like the priest and Levite, that means we've got our reasons for why we want to exclude people. We think we're still righteous and we can move on. We can even quote scripture doing it. But if we're going to be like the Samaritan in this story, we've got to allow love to conquer all of our justifications. So remember the person I told you to think about in the beginning of this sermon? Now, you've got your justifications for why you can exclude them. <laughs> you may feel like you can exclude them from the command to love your neighbor and even feel like you are doing God's work in doing it. But that the question looms for you as well. Will you take the out of the priest and the Levite, or will love conquer all of your reasons to exclude? We rarely see ourselves as people who aren't loving. We think of ourselves as inherently good people, um, and so how do we get away with it? Well, we do something that sociologists refer to as moral self-licensing. We give ourselves a moral license to do some sort of bad behavior by outweighing it against some sort of good thing we do, right? And so an example of this is like if you go to the gym for an hour and then you go home and you eat a pint of ice cream. Um, the only reason you don't feel guilty about eating that ice cream is because you've just been on the treadmill for an hour or something. Like you're the only reason like we can square things in our conscience, especially in relationships, um, is if we give ourselves a license to behave in a particular way. So let me give you an example of how this played out in my life. A few years ago, I had just purchased groceries and thankfully found a seat on the train, and I just put down like four bags of groceries from Trader Joe's, and while the train was going, there was a woman who was making her way through the car, and I could tell she was asking people for help. And, you know, no one was really making eye contact with her. They were kind of ignoring her. And I saw her coming my way. And she leaned over to say something to me. And I tried to get, like, clarity. Well, I couldn't understand her. And I asked her to repeat herself. And eventually, with a bag full, I mean, ultimately, with a bag full of groceries, I just said, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't help you. And so I'm not telling this story right now to, to, to make a comment on how to best engage those who are socioeconomically in a different place. There's a lot of literature on the ways to handle that. There are various perspectives on that. That's not why I'm actually saying this. I'm actually only saying this story to draw your attention to what actually happened next. I was convicted. I had a bag full of groceries. It's clear she was in some need, and I did nothing to help her, right? And I asked the Lord to forgive me and to give me an opportunity to see her again. And so as right at the next stop, I got out, and I tried to, like, find her in the other subway cars, um, but I couldn't find her. I couldn't see her. Um, and so I started to pray again. I asked God to forgive me. And I would say not 30 seconds passed before I started to think about all the other ways that I'm generous, I thought about how I tithe to the church. 
I thought about how I open my home and I invite people in the church to come and have dinner with us or how I do things in the community because I could not sit there for a minute with, the, with this tension that I might not be following Jesus into the ways of Jesus to love God and love my neighbor as myself. I had to give myself the moral license to actually exclude that woman by citing all the other wonderful things that I do because I couldn't sit there with the conviction. Now, why do we do that? Why is it that in order, like in, our, in this particular room, when you think about, when I ask you to think of someone you want to exclude, it could be a neighbor or a coworker. It could be a spouse, a roommate, a parent, a child that's grown up now, a sibling, an estranged friend, or someone who's just socioeconomically or ethnically different than you are. Whenever we want to, whenever we find ourselves thinking about not ways to love that person, but why we're not guilty for excluding them, chances are we're trying to justify our behavior in that moment. And you might have all the reasons in the world today to feel like you can do that. I'm, I'm not, you know, one of the, the, the things about loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, like we, I, I was, I think that there are two competing things that happen at the same time, right? Like, let's say someone has done something to you to really upset you, and so you're angry, and yet you feel at the same time a, a, a desire to be loving or you feel the call to be loving because God calls you to be loving. And so how am I supposed to be angry and loving at the same time? How can I be angry and good to them? And in my home, that means making coffee for my wife um, or my family. Some, for some reason, we believe that in, if you're doing good to someone who you, whom you're angry with or someone who's offended you, if you do good to them, somehow you're conceding that you've been wronged, right? We think like, for example, if I'm upset with my wife and she said something or I said something and like we are making breakfast the next morning for each other, like somehow we think by making waffles, like I'm saying like you, nothing, you did nothing wrong and I have no reason to be angry. But that's not the case. Like some of you may really feel this tension like you're more like, you have maybe a heightened sense of justice, right? Like, no, I'm not going to love because what was done to me or said to me was wrong. And you want to cling to your anger and you crush your desire to love. And others of you, because you feel this command to love, you will crush your anger and act like you haven't been sinned against and you haven't been wrong. You won't face the wounds of your own heart because you feel this call to love. What is it like to be good and angry at the same time? And some of you may not need to think about it in the context of your own relationships. When you, your justification may be, well, the only reason I'm not kind to him is because he isn't kind to me. She never appreciates what I do. Why should I continue to do anything for her? He's never considerate of, of me. Why should I be considerate of him? I could go overboard in loving this person and they never acknowledge it. I've always done things for her. She rarely does things for me. I'm tired of this being a one-way sort of like unilateral pursuit. There's no way I can show compassion for someone with a different ideology than me or political affiliation. If my coworker was in my shoes, she would treat me the same thing. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I am not going to allow myself to be trampled in the workplace. He's probably lazy. And it's going to use the money on drugs. That's your justification to walk away. I got where I am because of my hard work. They should just work harder as well. It's not my fault he's, he is where he is. I made the right choices in my life. All of those things, they're all ways to see the person in your path and to walk by and feel like you are morally righteous in doing so. 
But you see, the starting point for us is never something they've done or is never something in our own hearts. The starting point for Christians, if you're a Christian here, is always Jesus. When we do premarital counseling for couples, we often tell them that the dating relationship does not prepare you for marriage, in, in, at least in one particular way. In your dating relationship, if you've ever dated before or you're dating someone now or you're married, whatever, like when you're dating, the whole thing is set up for you to, all your reasons are in each other, right? Oh, I just, you know, he or she makes my heart melt, you know, like are they, they're so attractive, they're so funny, like, you know, we love the same things, we've got similar interests, we want to do the same things with our future and our career, and you've got all the same values, and it's your reasons for being together essentially are in each other, but the moment you say, I do, what you're actually doing is you are saying, my reasons are no longer in you, but they're in Christ, in fact, you make the vows because you anticipate the day when your reasons won't be in each other anymore. That's why you've got to actually make this promise, right? That you're anticipating that the other person may not give you the reason for better, for worse, or might not provide in rich, if for richer, for poor, or may not be able to take care of you in sickness and in health till death do you part. And so you go from having all your reasons in one another to actually having now all of my reasons from this day forth are actually hidden in Jesus Christ. That's why in Ephesians 5, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, especially when serving each other, submit to one another, not out of reverence for one another and how impressive you think one another, you, each other is, but submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. If you try to place all of your reasons for wanting to be good to that person you were thinking of earlier, if all of the reasons are hidden in that person, it's, not going to be a, um, it's only going to be a matter of time before they just make you angry and you'll lose all, the, all reasons to, to love them. You'll give yourself justifiable reasons to exclude. But if, if Jesus is your starting point, if you do so not out of reverence for them or because you find them impressive, but you do it so out of reverence for Jesus, it doesn't matter what they do, he becomes your reason for loving them. The starting point is not their offense, but it's God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Our starting point isn't how much they've offended us. It's how much we've offended God, and God has nevertheless loved us. Our starting point is that God has loved sinners like us, that we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us our own way, and God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Our fascination with that story is our starting point, and it is the power of that love that can conquer your justifications. Please do not misunderstand me. When I say see beyond your justification and let love conquer your justification, I'm not saying that you have to look in your own heart and find their inner resources and muster up the strength to love a person. No, I'm saying love that person out of the overflow and abundance of God's lavish love for you in Jesus Christ. Let that love give you the power to see beyond your justifications. And ask yourself as you hear this story, have my justifications conquered the call to love or has the call to love and God's love for me in Christ conquered all of my justifications and reasons to exclude this person? I believe the lawyer would have to face that in the story because he would either take the out of the priest and the Levite or he'd have to be like the Samaritan. So see beyond our justifications. And the second thing, we want to see ourselves in our neighbors. So we see beyond our justification, we see ourselves in our neighbors. You know, whenever we talk about loving anyone, that's, love is just such a complex word, right? Because that, that single word, love, 
can describe a, a myriad of emotions and, and can describe varying commitments. There's romantic love. There's love between friends, a love a parent has for a child or a child has for a parent. There's love you have for an animal. And there's love, again, if, for ice cream, right? Um, in all of that, when we say, oh, I just... I, I love, you know, I love my wife, or I, and, I, and I love cake. Like, I'm saying the same word, but it just, it, it means two different things, right? And so we want to think about that and acknowledge that when we talk about neighborly love. What does it mean to love my neighbor, right? Because it's not like romantic love, at least if you're married, I hope it's not. Like, it's not, it's not like love between friends or a parent and a child. It's neighborly love is different. What is it like? Um, C.S. Lewis is very helpful here. And to paraphrase, the key, if you want to know how to love your neighbor as you love yourself, really ask yourself, how, how is it that I actually love myself? Because you don't actually always like yourself. In fact, you might dislike much of what you do. You may, be, you may have certain behaviors and patterns of thinking, and you hate that you think that way. But Lewis argues that it never actually stops you from acting in your own best interest. So imagine if you did something terrible, um, you've said something or you've done something, you've royally failed, and you not only just dislike what you've done, you, you, you wish you were a better person. You're not fond of yourself. You're not, you don't like yourself very much. Even in the midst of that, imagine if someone came up to you and tried to slap you in the face. Lewis argues you're going to instinctively duck, dodge, or retaliate. Because no matter how you feel about yourself, at the end of the day, you are hardwired to act in your own best interest. And so maybe to love our neighbor the way we love ourselves doesn't mean we have to like our neighbor. Thank the Lord, right? That we're not called to like everyone. That would be more challenging, right? Like, having to, like we're forced to spend time with everyone. You don't actually even have to be fond of them, but maybe to love our neighbor like we love ourselves is regardless of those things, when possible, we are always trying to act in their best interest. So how does this help us? Well, I think it's important because if you're going to love your neighbor as you love yourself, something has to happen there, right? You have to actually begin to see yourself in your neighbor. You have to be able to identify with that person that you want to exclude. And I, this is actually, I think Jesus draws this home in a very powerful way. At least it would have been for that lawyer. You know, when we hear this parable, as it relates to seeing ourselves in others, we may we may imagine that we could see ourselves as a person on the road who's been rescued by Jesus, that he is the true good Samaritan, and now, therefore, we act like Jesus, the perfect good Samaritan. Yeah, like, that's true. Um, or we, we, we look at, um, we see ourselves as a good Samaritan, and we kind of make peace with that. Like, yeah, I need to go and be a good Samaritan. Now, the lawyer would never say that. And the reason is, is this was unthinkable to a Jewish person of the time. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans were people who were, when the Assyrians captured the Jews, there were certain Jews who intermarried with the Assyrians, and their offspring were known, became the Samaritans. So they were not seen as fully Jewish. And there was this rivalry. They had different places of worship. They had, like, their own Pentateuch. They would get into these debates about the Mosaic Law, often stories like Jesus just describes. And the Samaritans would always be on the losing end of that. But in this story, when trying to live out the Mosaic law, it isn't the priest or the Levite, but the Samaritan who gets it right. Some scholars suggest that in those days to have dinner with the Samaritan was like eating pork, which would make you unclean before God. And so Jesus asked at, at the end of this parable, he asked this question and notice how the lawyer responds in verse 36. 
which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even get himself to say the Samaritan. It's like, say it, man. Like, he'd rather describe what the guy did. Oh, the guy who took him to an inn and paid two denarii. And like, no, you could just say Samaritan. That's how much of, that's probably how much, like, animosity there is between the Jews and the Samaritans. And notice what Jesus says here. He says, you go and you do likewise. Jesus wants him to be like the person he would rather exclude. Of all the people he could identify with in this story, it's not the priest or the Levite that he's supposed to go and emulate. He's actually, actually, it's not even the person on the ground. He's actually now called to go and identify with the man he would rather exclude, to, to see himself in the person, the, the hero of the story, who's actually the person he would rather exclude from neighborly love. To put this in context, in our highly politicized culture, this is like Jesus telling you if you're a, if you're like a hardcore Republican and you've got the MAGA hat and everything on, like you're, you know, this is like Jesus telling you, go and be like the Democrat. And the Democrat is the hero of the story. Or if you're, uh, if you're on, if you're very left-leaning and the, the Green New Deal is not green enough for you, like this is like Jesus telling you, go and be like the Republican. Like I want you to think about that person that would never be ideologically or even personally the person who's going to be the hero of the story. And at the end of it, if you're going to follow Jesus, his command for you is to somehow now live this out by kind of identifying closely with the person you want to exclude. That's to feel the force of this. To feel the force of this parable, you've got to be able to see that person you've envisioned and see somehow be able to identify yourself with that person. Now, again, I don't want to over-psychologize this text, or I'm trying to put it in its context. I believe that's what would have been like hard-hitting for the lawyer of that time. And I don't think that we could feel the force of this parable unless we, we also hear Jesus say, the person in the beginning of the sermon, see yourself in that person. Go and do likewise. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to see David Letterman's show on Netflix where he interviews high-profile people like the former President Barack Obama and Mahalia. Um, well, last year, he interviewed Sean Carter, also known as Jay-Z. And in that vi interview, Jay-Z describes his childhood and what it was like to be abandoned by his father when he was only 10 years old. Um, and how he ended up selling drugs as a result of it. Uh, his father left when he was 10, so he hit the streets and he was selling drugs. And his mom knew about it but didn't say anything because it was paying the bills. And then he told Dave Letterman something very interesting. And I, th I actually thought it was very moving something I never expected is that he actually ended up forgiving his father um, who abandoned him when he was 10. He forgave him. I'm going to read the quote, a quote from the interview. It's not going to be on the screen, but I'll try to read it uh, slowly for you so you can kind of hear what uh, some of his experience as he describes what this was like. Um, he said, as a kid, I had a bunch of anger towards him, him being his father. But as I grew up, I realized that the things that he went through in life were very difficult. His brother got killed in the projects, and someone would call him and say, I just saw the guy who killed your brother, and he would get up from his bed with his children. He'd take his gun, and he'd leave the house. And at some point, my mother was like, man, you have a family here. But she didn't have the language that she needed to speak to him like, we love you. We don't want to lose you as well. She didn't have that language, so her fear came out almost like an ultimatum to him, and he eventually ended up leaving as a result of it. Jay-Z is basically saying, if you, hear, if you heard him, he's essentially saying that he believes his father was a man of his time. That's why he said, 
as I grew up, I realized that people are shaped by their experiences. And when people do things, they do it out of their own particular ideology of the time. A, he's a man of his time. He's a man of his experiences. And maybe as a father and as a husband, he can now somehow relate to it. You could say he could probably somehow identify with his father. Now, I'm not trying to say that this is an example of neighborly love or forgiveness that is all, should be epitomized. But the fact that he could empathize with his father, even though he abandoned him, was actually moving. The reason I'm sharing this is because you can hear Jay-Z in the interview trying to identify and empathize with his dad. It's like being willing to see himself. It's like he was, being, he was willing to see himself in the man he has all the justifiable reasons to exclude. And I believe the gospel would command us to go even further. I believe Loving your neighbor as you love yourself and seeing yourself in your neighbor means that when you look at your neighbor, you're not actually just seeing their offenses against you. You begin to look at that person and you actually can see them through the lens of your own imperfection. Hey, look, that person needs grace just like I need grace. Man, that person needs a savior just like I need a savior. They have hurt in their life just like I've got hurt in my life. They're responding to wounds and, and, and patterns of thinking and, and behavior, things that have been done to them, and I, just like I do in my life. They need mercy from God just like I need mercy from God. As we stand before God one day, their hope is the same hope that I have. It is Jesus. It is all Jesus. It is only Jesus. Maybe you can begin to see yourself in that person. Several weeks ago, I was in a coffee shop, and I was doing some work for the church plant, and providentially, my, one of my neighbors, whom I've known for about two years, haven't had a lot of time to connect with him, came into the coffee shop, and he just started to, he struck up a conversation about Jesus, like, this was like God gifting this, like, putting it in my lap, right? And I'm praying, Lord, please, like, help me to communicate the gospel in a very explicit way. And he said one of his offenses about the church that he just does not get, he grew up in the South, and he just hated how... Like, there was a distance that Christians created between them and the other world. Like, they're better than others. Like, they would look at ex-convicts or, uh, or they would look at certain demographics of people and, or people who fail or have a different lifestyle. And Christians would distance themselves and somehow being better than they are. And I was just telling him and saying it honestly from my heart. And you could tell, like, he was hearing it and he was really trying to process what I was saying. I was like, look, man, like... When I see somebody, whether they just out of prison or whenever, you know, whatever their story is, like, I know that my life is a miracle. The only reason I know God or I believe in Christ is because I believe God has loved me, though I'm a sinner and I'm an imperfect man. I actually can identify with a person who doesn't know God because the fact that I know God is a miracle. There was a once a day I didn't know him. There was once a day I was broken and I was lost and I, I was in search of meaning and I only know Jesus because he pursued me. And when he heard that, what happened is in his mind there was this gap between Christians and the rest of the world. But what happened in sharing my story, that, that gap began to close. And he heard me say that I can actually identify in some way with that person because my hope is the same as his. It's God's mercy. You see, there's no way around it. God will bring people into our path every day, and it's only a matter of time before we find them difficult to love. And you know, in our, what, what I've just said is going to be important because our temptation in that moment is going to be to exclude and to come up for all these, with all these reasons of why we should justify our, their exclusion or why they're not worthy of our love or why we can walk away and still be seen as righteous. But do you see that that's not our story? 
That's why I said our starting point has to be God's love for us. I think it's so interesting that this lawyer essentially asked Jesus, who is worthy of my love? And he's talking to a man and looking into the eyes of a man who came to this earth to love those who are unworthy. Because we have rejected him and rebelled against him, preferred the created, th created things to the creator. It's lunacy. We foolishly believe and are still tempted to believe that something on this earth could rival the one who created the stars, the sun, and the moon, and the galaxies, and all of the cosmos. That whether we think that money, sex, and power somehow can gratify us or satisfy us more than the one who made the universe and with the breath of his voice made everything that you see in the sky. We think something can rival God. And in all of it, this is our story, that God could have actually excluded us and been justified to do so. But that's not what he did. He moved towards us in weakness, in humiliation, and poverty. He came into this world, he took on our flesh, and he died for our sins so that when God accepts us, it isn't because he has overlooked our offenses. No, it's because Jesus has absorbed God's wrath for every single, every, every bad intention and lustful thought and every evil act. Jesus has accounted for it, past, present, and future, so that when God forgives us, he is both just and justifier of those who hope in Christ. So that when we ask God to forgive us, he is faithful and just to do so. And I believe that becomes a paradigm for how we love others. Because when you can, you can go to a person and then have all the justifications to exclude that person, or you can think about your own story and how God has loved you in Jesus and say, no, it is just for me to love this person with the affection of Christ when I think of the way that God has loved me. It is just for me to see beyond my justifications and see that person as a person who is made in the image of God, whom God may reconcile to himself. It is just for me to be able to see myself in that person because ultimately at the end of the day, his or her hope is the same as my hope. I am welcomed by mercy just as that person, if they're ever welcomed by God, would be welcomed by God's, mer God's mercy. It is this lavish love that we've received this is a love with which we find that we love those who are actually difficult to love, helping us see beyond our justifications and humbling us to see ourselves in the very people that we want to exclude. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you your presence is with us, that we are not just gathering around ancient words that have no meaning for us today. We thank you, we thank you that you're a living God who speaks and that your word transforms. Father, I pray for this church and myself included that your love would be so real to our hearts your spirit would transform our hearts with the gospel again to where your love would be the justification for why we ought to love our neighbors. I pray for those specific relationships that came to mind today, Lord. I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would give everyone in this room the ability to love in divine ways, Lord, that can only be explained by you and your power. 
And I pray, Lord God, that when we love others, we wouldn't think we're doing them a favor, but we would identify with them as people who also need mercy. Only you can do this, God. So we lean the weight of our trust, not upon our efforts, but in your promise to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.